Uh, well, a, a couple of words. I have a, a habit um, that's born out of deep-seated insecurity, thanks for asking, <laughs> of trying to lower expectations before I start to speak or preach. And um, today, I don't, I don't really have to fake that at all. I, for, for whatever reason, I don't know why this is, I feel more nervous and scattered and uncertain about, um, about this than I have for a while. Um, so... But here's the thing. I really think somewhere in here is a really good word. Um, my interaction with this passage has been really fruitful for me. Uh, and so I want to share that with you today. And if you can uh, navigate with me the disjointedness and the, the clumsiness of uh, how that plays out, uh, I think there will be good news for us at the end. Uh, so thank you so much for your grace. Uh, Abrupt, disjointed transition number one. I, uh, I want to tell you about, for a minute, the, the most uh, disappointing heroes of my life. Um, you, if you, I've never said that phrase before, just this moment, disappointing heroes. Um, and you might think, like I think if I heard that phrase for the first time, I would probably think something like, oh, he had this idealized version of someone, and he met them, and got to know them more, and they were a real letdown. And that's not uh, quite what I mean. What I mean when I say uh, disappointing heroes uh, is something more like there was something heroic in the way that they disappointed me. <laughs> I, think, I think in many ways probably I still have the faith that I have because these people utterly uh, uh, failed to meet my expectations of them. Um, and in some ways, I think, probably subverted my expectations, thankfully. Um, so let me explain. When I was in my early 20s, I got a degree uh, in theology. It was really in Bible and Christian ministries, and I always put theology on my resume because that feels fancier. Uh, and I had this kind of intense, burning faith uh, that I totally expected would really make me into a big deal someday. I planned, as one does to save the world from itself. If I'm honest and self-reflective, besides this sort of intense burning faith, I also had some pretty extraordinary insecurities. You can see at 43, they have not just you know, passed me by. They've not, they've not gone by the wayside. Um, but I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, and not, not that all of my insecurities sort of revolved around that, but when I went away to school, I think I felt that some kind of way. Even though I felt like I could hang intellectually with um, this sort of world of Christian academics, there was a part of me, I think, that held everyone at some kind of arm's length, everyone who seemed to be native to that world. I just sort of felt like you are something other than me, and I'm something other than you. And if we get to know one another too much, you'll find that out. Uh, um, again, I don't, I don't know that I ever had that thought. That's not what the lyrics were, but it's what the music was, I think. I felt like an imposter. Um, so one of the ways that that played out specifically is that I, I graduated um, from my undergraduate college, which was Point Loma Nazarene University. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. It was the denominational regional college. Um, and it, it was filled with genuinely beautiful, faithful people. And, if I'm, and I was involved, but I also, I finished there 
without really getting close to any of the people who would be, I think, sort of spiritual and intellectual mentors. I just kind of had this way of keeping people a little bit at a distance. Uh, one of um, one of the most sort of obvious people to maybe fill that role in my life um, left the college uh, after my junior year. And he went on to become the president of uh, the Nazarene Theological Seminary, which is the sort of natural next step for um, a student of theology in, uh, uh, in the undergraduate Nazarene school. And I remember he came back for a visit one time, and I, I had interacted with him some, and I'd even met his wife, and they were both delightful people. But um, as always, I was kind of careful to make sure that I didn't know them too well, and they didn't know me too well. Um, but he came back one day to the school to sort of recruit for the seminary. Um, I remember him. I remember asking him one question, because the seminary was in Kansas City. I was in San Diego at the time, and I, I raised my hand, and I said, is Kansas City or is it not the worst place to live on earth? Uh, I was from California and I thought everything but California was the worst place to live on earth. It's not true, it turns out. Um, but something about that interaction and also something about the fact that I wasn't really sure what the next step should look like led to me um, going from San Diego after I graduated to Kansas City. Um, uh, and again, I left that school, I think, with this little hint of regret that I had quite carefully, maybe without a lot of calculation, but somewhere deep in me, there was this like caution about really, truly, deeply getting to know somebody. Um, the story, as, actually, as I wrote it down, uh, I, I, I grossly oversimplified it. The reality is this. I went to Kansas City for a year. I left. <laughs> Went home for a year, went to Costa Rica for a year, and then I went back to Kansas City a second time, really going, I don't really know what to do next. I'm just going to go to the last place that I thought I should go. And the only real clarity of calling that I felt like I had at this point, it was a time in my life that I feel like I was really struggling to hear the voice of God uh, or to understand my sense of purpose or calling in the world. The only thing that I had a real clear sense about was this. I just, if God ever said anything to me, it was in these days God saying, go somewhere and stay for a while. Like I just had this sense, I just had this, I started to kind of do the math that you do, you know, when you start to go, maybe there's a problem with me. <laughs> um, I think I had lived, you know, from the time that I started college until this, you know, which was a, a few years now after I had graduated from college, I don't think I'd lived any specific place more than 10 months at a time. And I think I had known, or I think I had lived with approximately 473,000 different people. I was like, it was 17 or 18. It was some large number of people. And I, I started to just do the math and I realized this thing about myself, that I was being very careful not to be very close to anybody. I just sort of expected the shine to wear off or something. So the sense of calling that I moved back to Kansas City with was just this. You might want to stay a little while. Um, and I did. And because I stayed a little while, one of the things that happened was 
I got to know these two people, the most disappointing heroes of my life. Um, and that was uh, the president uh, of the seminary, Ron. Ron Benefield was his name. Uh, and his wife, uh, Janet. The two of them, I mean, for me, again, a person who's sort of suspicious of this idea of authority in the church and who's cautious and hold it at his, holds it as an, at an arm's length, um, they couldn't have been more threatening, right? They were kind of a big deal in the world that I lived in. Uh, they had precisely the kind of authority and credibility that made me suspicious and standoffish, but also that made me really long to get near them. They were known holy people. <laughs> and I don't know exactly what I expected, but over the course of the seven years that I stayed in Kansas City and that we ended up going to church together, um, I, I expected, I think, as I neared them, maybe that they would see some things that only PhDs could see or that only holy people could see, that they would see my brokenness or my imposterness, and also maybe that they would heal it. Maybe they were that good. That's how holy they were. I don't know, but I expected something sort of radical and transformative to come if I connected to these people. Something I expected something unexpected, because these were not people like where I was from. Here's what I got. Ron and Janet Benefield, the most disappointing heroes of my life, were just truly, simply present whenever they were with me. Um, <laughs> I'm like overcome with gratitude as I think about that. There were times of turmoil in my life um, during those years as I kind of clumsily tried to establish a new path. I started seminary and dropped out three different times. I fouled up one relationship after another. And they just had this way of like simply clearly seeing me because they were there. They were present with me. Ron would kind of notice and he would say, hey, you want to go play tennis? And that was Latin for, let's get together and you can tell me a little bit about what's going on. And we would play tennis. He didn't have to fake that, even that. He, he loved tennis and we would play tennis. And afterwards, we'd play a set or two. He was 30 years older than me. He couldn't really hang. I want that noted. I want <laughs> but he would say, how are things? And I don't know how to describe the power of his particular how are things, except to say that he was there present in the question in a way that not everybody I knew was. He wasn't even slightly preoccupied. He communed with me. It was so simple and so obvious that I couldn't help but be let down a little. <laughs> but it was so powerful that I couldn't help but be built up, too. Uh, once, my, my mom, who was a lifelong Nazarene, she grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, her dad was a, a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene in Nampa. Um, but she'd never, like, you know, she'd never gone to school, to any of the schools. She'd never sort of interacted with these people in these powerful places. And she came to visit me um, 
And somehow or another, Janet decided spontaneously, uh, Ron's wife decided to go to lunch with us after church that Sunday that my mom was visiting. And this was a little bit nerve-wracking for me. For some reason, I, I really needed both of these people to sort of see one another and approve of one another. <laughs> um, but I knew the circles that they ran in were kind of different. And my mom is somewhat shy. She can be a little bit, she can feel kind of standoffish herself. But again, there was this, just this simple, disarming, genuine kind of presence that came from Janet. She got caught up in my mom's discovery of the new city. She ended up, we got in the back of her car at lunch. After lunch, we left our own car at the place that we'd eaten. And she just drove us around. She took us into tunnels in Kansas City that I didn't even know about. She's just having fun being a tour guide. Um, and she just had this way of being with people that ended up making nonsense out of their suspicion and their insecurity. My mom said afterwards, she said, that was really, really refreshing. <laughs> she said, you, you, know, you don't know who these people are who are in these positions, and, um, and you hope that the church sort of raises up people who are genuinely faithful, who are kind, um, but you don't, you don't really know, because people, people in power often are people who have pursued power. And so she was just really touched by this. She just, there was just this simple kind of being together that they were so good at. And here's the truth. That was it. <laughs> that, that, was, that was my disappointing heroes. Um, I spent enough time with them over the years to say with some measure of confidence that their holiness, the thing that made them kind of a big deal, that made them genuine leaders, was not about some transcendent brilliance or some total purification from human impulses. I, I would watch them get annoyed with one another, I would, and we would talk about all kinds of things, and I would go, that just sounds like a regular human thought. <laughs> it turns out these are just regular human people, but they have a way of being with any credibility or, or authority that they'd established over the years was about that, that simple capacity to be with, to share themselves and receive others, to genuinely commune. They, have, they had a habit also of delighting in other people's company, and it was hard not to delight in theirs. It was a real letdown. <laughs> um, there are a number of things I think um, that, when I think about the denomination that I grew up in, there are a number of things that I, I think that I kind of can hold against them in a certain way as a, as a, as a kid who comes from there. But this is something I'll say. Um, the people who uh, were valued as leaders um, were reflective of the character of Christ in that way. And I, and I really appreciate and respect that. It shaped me and changed my thinking. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I want to get back to our passage now. Abrupt transition number two. I think in a passage like this, if you're anything like me, you are probably inclined, I think, to totally miss what I think now is most remarkable in this passage. Uh, this story appears in all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what they call the synoptic gospels. And synoptic comes from the, the, the word synopsis, the idea that they, these gospels wanted to make a summary of the critical moments of Jesus' ministry and life and death and resurrection. And in all three, uh, this story is included. And it seems like kind of a side trip 
<laughs> really. You know, Jesus kind of on his way to, to Jerusalem. He's performing miracles, and, but it's always, he's, he's doing ministry among the people. And then he goes up on a mountain. I think for a modern reader, and I, by modern, I mean somebody who's been tragically exposed to the scientific method endlessly. For, <laughs> um, the thing that's most noteworthy is the sort of supernatural element. You know, the thing that sort of naturally sticks out for readers like me is that. Isn't this amazing what happened, you know? Um, and Jesus, throughout the course of the Gospels, has been doing sort of supernatural things. But I actually think for a first century reader, that might not stick out in the same way that it does for us. I mean, obviously, it was important. It's a, doing miracles is worth something, you know? Um, but, I, but I think that for me, I've been too quick to sort of put this story and others like it in this sort of mental drawer that's like, Jesus is magic. I stole that from Sarah Silverman for what that's worth. But, um, but I think in some ways that captures what I, the problem with the way that I've read this passage in the past. What's remarkable is what's supernatural. But I want to say that now, um, thanks in part to the most disappointing heroes in my life, the thing that I see that's much more remarkable about this passage is the fact um, that, like Jenny said, this is the marking of Jesus as divine, as truly holy, as near to God, one with God. And not much happens on that mountain besides just this kind of being with. Jesus is marked as divine, as truly holy, by way of this simple, even if supernatural, communion. It might just as easily have been Peter, James, and John saying, we went up on a mountain, and he killed a thousand men with his bare hands. It was incredible. Or it might have been he, he threw a lightning bolt down, and the entire Roman army was paralyzed, and Israel's rightful place in the world was restored. It might have been all of our sins were shown to us one by one. It was rough. We got to Jesus, there was none. Pure as the driven snow. It could have been that. But the heart of the story that Peter, James, and John tell is this. We went up on the mountain and he was with God, and he was with the prophets, and he was with us. It almost begs for this, and then what happened? There's the, the cloud comes down, he's shining, then what? Nothing. He was with God, and he was with the prophets, and he was with us. He communed, and now we've come down the mountain, and he is with us still. Uh, the writers of the Gospels, and I think the early followers of Jesus more broadly, have this really, really important task as they sort through what are sort of the critical things to express that they witnessed. They need both to make the case that Jesus was truly the Messiah, that God was present in Jesus in some real new way. But beyond this, they also, I think, recognize 
whether intuitively or explicitly, that they need to flesh out what kind of community the, follower of Jesus, the followers of Jesus were to become. What kind of kingdom this new people was to be. And in hashing this out, I think they were intentional about recounting how Jesus' credibility and authority were marked. They were marked with a kind of deep, genuine being with. He was with God the Father, enveloped in God the Father, totally communing with God. And he's shown. The way that authority and credibility are established, are established in a community, I think, are very telling about what kind of community we're talking about. In Rome, at that time, here's how nearness to God was marked. Here's how holiness and authority and credibility were marked by crucifixion. The emperor would say, here's how, here's how near to God I am. I'll decide whether you live or die. It wasn't that long after this that the, the Appian Way, this road between Rome and, and the next major city, was lined with 6,000 slaves who, who had rebelled, nailed to crosses. Because the kind of community that Rome was interested in being was about domination. And so in that community, the nearness to God was marked by domination, by crucifixion. And in this new kingdom of God, ushered in with Jesus' death and resurrection, it's the kind of community where communion is a closer synonym to holiness and to divinity than purity is, or than power, or than any other thing. The way that Jesus' authority and credibility are marked as the true Messiah is this, this kind of being with. <clears throat> Um, this is where I get to literally just handwritten notes made eight minutes before the service started. So forgive me. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen from here. This is very exciting. It's kind of a troubling time um, when I think about how credibility and authority are established. Um, in our country, and maybe in some ways in the church in this country, uh, you can do really well for yourself by making other people look dumb, by making other people feel small. It's a new kind of domination. We don't do crucifixion, but we sure don't do connection. We sure don't do communion. That's not how authority is established in our country these days. Um, I want to say about our church particularly, we're just folks. <laughs> Disappointing heroes at best. Um, I want to say I'm so grateful for the kind of community um, that we are becoming. I want to express a word of gratitude for Joe. I told him when I found out that uh, that, yeah, he was going to resign, that uh, I was really grateful for him, that grief would be a part of this process for me, but the last word would be gratitude. And there are a number of things that I'm grateful for about Joe. He's thoughtful and charismatic. He's a gifted preacher. But the truth is this, none of that would have been worth anything to me 
if he wasn't capable of a kind of being with us. Um, just as a, as a testament to that. So Steph is the, this, the new church council chair. And so he needed to give her a heads up uh, about his plan to resign. I don't really know why. I don't know how that works. But in any case, I had planned to meet with him and just talk about some things that were going on in my life. And so he set up to meet with her just after that. I'm telling you, this man, <laughs> this man just listened to me. He, he was clearly not faking this. He had, he had learned how to be with me even when, I mean, it was seriously four minutes after I left that he was going to have to share this news with Steph. And I, knew, I know that was a big deal for him. But he was with me. And um, that's the thing I'm most grateful for. And I, and I hope that the kind of community that we are becoming, the kind of kingdom that we are trying to witness to in Boise and in this wounded nation is that kind of community. The kind of community where authority and credibility and nearness to God is marked by a kind of sincere, deep being with. Um, I don't think there's a lot else that's really worth raising up. <laughs> I think you can confuse a lot of things for holiness or credibility. Uh, but I think in this passage we see that that's the mark of holiness. That's the mark of nearness to God for, for this kingdom that we are trying to become a part of to participate in. Um, I totally just had this thought. This is not even in my handwritten notes. So um, I'm really grateful for Arbor Season uh, being here. It's just beautiful. And, I, and what I want to say about that is um, artists and musicians, uh, you, to do that well is to practice a kind of presence. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for the work that they do, for your talent, all of that. But the thing that matters what worshiping, what leading in worship means is that. It means the capacity to really enter into communion with the music itself, with God, with the people in the room. Um, and I'm really grateful for, uh, for being here today and just experiencing some of that with you. Uh, I got nothing else. <laughs> Thank you.